Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Faith Essentials, everything you need to know about Islam in one place with over 30 high-quality on-demand courses, live Q&A, sessions with your favorite instructors, and more. Faith Essentials is the one-stop portal for every Muslim. Faith Essentials breaks down the core aspects of your deen into bite-sized lessons and concise modules you can complete in a single commute. Nothing complicated, just the essentials. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi mawala amma ba'd. We spoke about how the Meccan phase was uh, 13 years, right? So the Medinan phase was 10 years, 13 years and then 10 years. Altogether, it was 23 years, right? Mecca was 13 years. Medina was 10 years. And obviously, this was since the Prophet ﷺ received revelation, so he was 40 years old at this point, 53 when he migrated to Medina, and 63 ﷺ when he passed away. And that's just giving you kind of like a foundation. The Hijrah, this this here, the Hijrah. This event, when the Muslims established the Islamic calendar, they based it on the Hijrah of the Prophet That happened at the time of Umar When Umar was the Khalifa and they were establishing the Islamic calendar, they based it, you know, looking at all the different events and which one they would base it on, they based it on the Hijrah of the Prophet To show you out of everything that had, they didn't base it on Badr, they didn't base it on Uhud, or they didn't base it on his birth or something like that, or his death. They based it on the Hijrah of the Prophet So when the Prophet was migrating to Medina, obviously the Ansar knew that the Quraysh were chasing the Prophet They knew this. But they couldn't just go out and meet the Prophet and fight Quraysh and so on. So Quraysh would only follow the Prophet up until a certain point. Okay. So Abu Bakr and Umar, uh, Abu Bakr and the Prophet were traveling. They had their guide, and each day, the Ansar and the Muhajirin they would come out on the outskirts of Medina. They would come out on the outskirts of Medina and await to see if this is the day that the Prophet was coming. When the heat of the day would come up they would then go back to their homes. It would get so hot in Medina that, you know, you just can't stand out in the sun like that. And then finally one day when everybody was going, you know, the heat of the day had come and most of the people had gone back to their homes, someone was still standing there and in the, in the distance he saw a silhouette. He saw the silhouettes of the Prophet and Abu Bakr coming. He started shouting to everybody, هَذَا جَدُّكُمُ الَّذِي تَنْتَظِرُونَ that this is like your, your senior person that, you, that you've been waiting for. And so all the people of, the, of Medina, the Ansar, the Aws and Khazraj, the women, the children, all the Muhajireen, they came out and actually they also came out with swords and horses to defend the Prophet ﷺ in case anybody was chasing him as well. This day, Anas said, was the happiest day to ever come upon Medina. The happiest day was the day that the Prophet ﷺ entered Medina. Abdullah ibn Salam who is narrating what happened on that day. And he was there amongst the people when the Prophet ﷺ entered. He said, Abdullah ibn Salam was actually, um, before, he was Jewish. And he was a, uh, a scholar amongst the Jews. 
And he went out because they know that in their scriptures that there was a prophet mentioned. So he went out to see, was this truly the prophet mentioned in their scriptures? And that's why the Jews there in Medina, that's, they had gone out to see if this was the prophet that the scriptures had mentioned. So he says, when the prophet وسلم, arrived in Medina, I went to see him. So this crowd, everybody's gathering and it's the happiest day. Abdullah ibn Salam is not Muslim. But he went out to see the Prophet ﷺ with the Muslims. And when he saw him, he said, I immediately recognized through his features that he could never be a liar. In another like, translation, you see that when, I, when he saw his face, he knew that that was not the face of someone who lies. ﷺ. The first thing that he said, and you know, in a speech, they'll say that the, the things that people remember the most are what you say in the beginning of your speech and what you say at the end. And usually... Things in the middle people forget. So the first statement that a person is going to say is going to be exceptionally important. That's why in Sahih al-Bukhari, how many of you know the first hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari? Right? This is the first hadith. How many of you know the second hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari? Does anybody know the second hadith? Does anybody know it? Are you serious? This is Qabila al-Shams. The second hadith was uh, the commencement of the wahi. It's actually in your notebook. That's number two. The commencement of the wahi is the second hadith. How many people know the last hadith of Sahih Bukhari? The last hadith. Kalimatani khafifatani ala lisan. So the first hadith you're familiar with. So the Prophet said, this is his first statement. This is the first hadith, the first thing that the people heard from the Prophet when he entered Medina. He said, Ayyuhan nas, O people, afshu salam wa at'imu ta'am wa silu al-arham the Prophet said, and notice here that everything that he's saying basically is related to social services. Social services. The Prophet said, extend peace amongst yourselves. So the Arabic word afshu salam means to spread it, like, like let it proliferate and extend about it. Like, consistently and frequently say salam amongst yourselves. That's the first thing that the Prophet ﷺ said. Spread salam amongst yourselves. And feed needy people. Provide food to the needy. Maintain your ties of kinship. Maintain your ties of kinship. And pray at night and pray at night while others are sleeping. You'll enter Jannah peacefully. You'll enter Jannah peacefully. When they came out, the Ansar, they actually couldn't recognize who was the Prophet. Between Abu Bakr and the Prophet ﷺ, they were like, which one is the Prophet ﷺ? And actually Abu Bakr, who was younger than the Prophet ﷺ, looked older than the Prophet ﷺ. Looked older. You know, sometimes you, you, know, you see people, they're like 60 years old, and you see them, they look like they're 35, right? You guys know people like that? Or this doesn't happen? It's a phenomenon that doesn't happen in London. The Prophet ﷺ looked extremely, extremely youthful. Extremely youthful. ﷺ. And we spoke about the Prophet ﷺ was very handsome and so on. So between him and Abu Bakr, they couldn't tell who was the Messenger of Allah until when the Prophet ﷺ sat down and they, you know, they went to get some things, they knew, okay, this was the Prophet ﷺ. There's some critical lessons there. Uh, one of those lessons is that the Prophet ﷺ didn't distinguish himself from the companions, which is something that you'll see in some religions, 
you know, the head priest or the head person is like a peacock amongst everybody else, right? The hat is huge, the clothing is very elaborate, and you'll know, and you can tell hierarchy based on their clothing. In Islam, that's actually forbidden to do, for a person to establish hierarchy basically with their clothing like that. So for an imam to, you know, it's interesting, like, even if you see, like, say, in Mecca, Medina, whatever the imam wears, you'll see people the next day wearing the same clothing, right? They sell it in the shops and everybody's going around dressed like a sheikh and stuff like that, all right? The Prophet ﷺ, when he entered Medina, he stayed, you know, everybody wanted the Prophet ﷺ to stay at their house. So there was this competition, basically, who will the Prophet ﷺ, whose house will he stay at? And the Prophet ﷺ said, so not to offend anybody, a beautiful way that he, he said, just let, because everybody's taking the camel, come stay at my house, come stay at my house. And the Prophet ﷺ is just saying, let, you know, let the camel go. The camel stopped at the home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. So you imagine you have a guest tonight. Someone's staying at your house. Who's the guest? The Messenger of Allah That's the guest. Can you imagine how nervous he must have been? You know, sometimes you just get a normal guest and you're nervous, right? Abu Ayyub radiallahu anhu, he had like a two-level home. And he wanted the Prophet to sleep upstairs and they would sleep downstairs. He's like, how can you sleep upstairs? The Prophet is, is sleeping downstairs. The Prophet said, no, I'd prefer downstairs. People are going to be coming and so on. And so Abu Ayyub and his wife, عنهم, they went upstairs and they were sleeping. And they're completely nervous. The Prophet is on the floor underneath them. They didn't want to move. They didn't want to shake. They're, you know what I mean? It's not like a concrete house. You can hear movements, you can hear sounds and so on. And during the night, they spilled something, right? They spilled something, and you can imagine, you know, they were like freaking out that it might leak through the, the top floor and drop on the Prophet Wasallam and disturb him, right? And it was so nerve-wracking that Abu Ayyub radiallahu told this to the Prophet Wasallam and insisted he has to sleep upstairs. Abu Ayyub, something else you'll see that he brought food to the Prophet ﷺ. In the food, it had garlic. It had garlic in the food. And Abu Ayyub noticed that the Prophet ﷺ didn't touch the garlic. And so Abu Ayyub who he said to the Prophet ﷺ, is garlic haram? And the Prophet ﷺ said no. But the Prophet disliked the, you know, the intense smell of the garlic, right? But it's not haram. And Abu Ayyub who said that if the Prophet ﷺ dislikes it, then we dislike it as well. So he himself and, and for him and his family, they, they weren't eating garlic, not because it's haram, but because the Prophet ﷺ disliked it. So a, a lesson that you learn there, a lot of times in our culture, whenever you tell someone something, they'll usually ask a question like, is it sunnah or is it fard? Right? How many people have heard that question before? The ultimate fifth question, right? Is it sunnah or is it fard? And in brackets, it's like, because if it's sunnah, I won't do it. If it's far, then that means like it's coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so, this, and, and there's a misconception. The Surah Fiqh class, we clarify this. You have five ahkam shara'iyya, right? Ahkam shara'iyya are, uh, let me write it down for you. You have the first one being, let's start from fard. Right, so you have fard. Then you've got mustahab. Notice I'm not calling it sunnah here, I'm calling it mustahab. It's like coming from hub. You know like Habibi? You guys know Habibi? Okay. Mustahab is beloved or desirable. Then you have Mubah. Mubah is permissible. Then you have Makru. 
You guys know makru, right? And then uh, haram. So sometimes and there's different opinion among scholars. Some will say it's fard, some say well it's haram, right? Maybe just exact opposites. Fard, actually, let me just say, fard means that it's obligatory, you have to do it, and if you don't do it, it's susceptible to punishment. If you do do it, obviously, great reward. Susceptible to punishment, not that the person's going to be punished, but it might lead the person to um, being punished. There's consequences to that. Mustahab is something that's desirable, but there's no sin if a person doesn't do it. Something that's mustahab is like using miswak, for example. Using miswak is mustahab. It's not far. If a person doesn't use miswak, they're not going to go to hellfire for not using miswak. Right? But if they do it, there's lots of reward in that. Uh, and mu'fard, an example of that is like praying salah. If you pray fajr, duhar, like that, asr, it's fard. If you don't do it, susceptible to punishment. This middle one is mubah, which is neutral, which is no punishment if done. And there's no reward, no punishment involved. That's like eating bananas, right? Eating banana, it's, it's not, you're not going to get reward for it, you're not going to get punished. If someone said bismillah, you'll get reward for saying bismillah, right? But the banana itself... There's no encouragement, no discouragement. Makru is something that is disliked. Although if a person does it, they're not susceptible to punishment. They're not. So an example of that is arguing. Arguing is makru. The Prophet said, You know, people, they just get an argumentation. No, you did do this. No, I didn't do it. And they just go back and forth like that. It's makru to argue. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I, uh, I'm the champion of a home in paradise for a person who leaves aside argumentation even though they might have the truth. So we know because there's a reward that on the opposite that it is something makru. There's no punishment related to it, but it's just makru. And then you have haram, which is something that's forbidden. Something is forbidden. And usually when people ask questions, they always ask about haram things. So they're like, what's the, what's the ruling on going to a dance with your girlfriend? It's haram. <laughs> right? What's the rule? And they, they keep asking questions like this one brother. He once asked, you know, they kept, it was like a camp when we were younger. And he's asking all these questions to, you know, there's a speaker that was invited. What's this? Haram. What's this? Haram. What's this? Haram. And then he's like, why is everything haram? And I thought to myself, yeah, if you ask any question in Islam, it's going to be haram. Why? Later on, I, I realized it's because we only ask about haram things. We know it's haram, so we ask about it. Hopefully, someone will say, no, it's makru, it's not haram. <laughs> but no, it is haram. Let me confirm it for you. It is haram. Nobody asks about bananas. Nobody will say, nobody will say that, you know, what's the ruling on bananas? It's mubah. You can have it. It's not haram. Now, Muslims follow the middle path. Right? Muslims follow the middle path. What is the middle path? So this is, I noticed one brother coming to this conclusion. This is why I'm bringing it up. Some people, they'll say, you have one sheikh that'll say something like, it's fard to do this. And someone else will say, no, it's haram to do it. And so one person doesn't want to follow any extreme. And he wants to follow the middle path. And so he's like, if one scholar says haram and the other scholar says it's fard, then I'll just say that it's mubah. You can do whatever you want. And every time people differ, they're like, one says mustab, one says makro, I'll go mubah. Let me take the middle option. Is the middle option 
And it's not an option. The Sunnah of the Prophet is whatever the Quran and Sunnah points to. All right? So the middle path, you can write that one down. The middle path is whatever the Quran and Sunnah points to. So if it points to something being haram, that is the middle path. If it points to something being fard, that is the middle path. So when people talk about extremism or something like that, your point where you look at the two extremes is based on what the Quran and Sunnah points to. So that's why when people say the Sunnah of the Prophet it encompasses all of this. We know all of these things based on the Sunnah of the Prophet you also see in Abu Ayyub radiallahu ta'ala anhu, his, what he was doing for the Prophet sallallahu was serving, and you can make it more general a little bit, serving people of knowledge. Serving people of knowledge. As we said that in the olden days, there weren't like hotels or something like that. People stayed at people's houses. And they served them because of like the advent of, of hotels and whatnot. People have kind of like lost this culture. Usually it's like everybody's on their own or, you know, people don't invite and so on and so forth. And so hopefully, inshallah ta'ala, we learn the lesson that we should start building this up, and that is taking care of our guests, people that come, and so on. So Hayb al-Rumi, I just wanted to mention his story and the story of two more muhajirs, Suhaib and one other. Suhaib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when he did hijrah to Medina, he's very wealthy in Mecca. He came a slave, you know, freed, and then he became extremely wealthy, extremely successful business person. And then he believed in the Prophet and when he was going to, when the Prophet you know, gave the commandment for the believers to do hijrah, Suhaib radiallahu anhu left Mecca. They stopped him on the way and they, you know, like they're, they're coming from a distance, Suhaib radiallahu anhu, they're, they're going to fight him and, and he's like, there's no way you're going to stop me, I'm going to go for hijrah. And so he took out his, his arrows and he said that Ma'ashara Quraysh, the Quraysh people, he's like, you know I'm the best shot. With every arrow that I have, I'm going to kill one of you people. And then afterwards, I'll fight you till the death. They said in response, they said to Suhaib that you came to us poor and we made you rich. And now you're like, do you think we're going to let you go like this? And then Suhaib, it came to his mind that he said, if it's just about the money, right? If it's just about the money, he said, what if I give you all the money, would you let me do hijrah? And they said, yes. So Suhaib told them all the money is in such and such an area, right? Because the money is like gold coins, so it's in a location. It's not like he has a bank account or they freeze his assets or something like that, right? It's in a location. And so Suhaib, radiallahu anhu, told them all of it is there, and they let Suhaib be. Suhaib came to Medina, he'd lost everything. He just came with what he had with him. There's nothing left, all of his wealth. And so they told the Prophet ﷺ the transaction that Suhaib did. The transaction meaning that in order to be with the Prophet ﷺ, he paid all his wealth for that. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, Rabihal bay'u Suhaib. That Suhaib who got the better of that transaction. To be with the Prophet even though all his wealth was expended for that, he came out on top in that transaction. The other story is the story of Salman al-Farisi. Salman, he was born to Persian parents in Persia. And you know, he left his father one day. There were some Christians. They had come in the area. And he ran away with them when he was very young. Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, he was very old, and he lived for a very long time. 
So he went from Persia, he went with the Christians, and he went to Asham, into the Asham area, and he became like the servant of the Christian priests there. So priest after priest would die, and another priest would come. Some of them would be corrupt, some of them were good people, until Salman radiallahu anhu is very knowledgeable of the scriptures himself. One of his priests, one of his teachers there in Asham, when he came to the end of the, his life, he said to Salman that, you know, the time has come for a prophet to be sent by God. And he said, these are his characteristics and these are his signs. He's like, yeah, as many signs, but of his signs, right? He said, number one, he doesn't accept charity. Number two is he'll accept a gift. And number three is he has a seal of the prophethood between his shoulder blades on the back. And then this priest died. Salman radiallahu anhu was so excited. You know, he found some Arabs and he said, you know, can you take me to, you know, these Arabia and so on and so forth. And, and they said yes, and they're like giggling, laughing, you know, kind of like those crazy Arabs that, uh, that you see in the movies. These were the guys. So they bought, they actually um, enslaved Salman. They enslaved him and they sold him as a slave. Right, so in just in the middle of the desert between Asham and Arabia, he was working as a slave. Each night he's praying to, praying to Allah, you know, to bless him to, um, to be with the Prophet. But, you know, he's still following his dream. Then what happened is this slave master sold Bilal to some Jewish slave masters in Medina. And so Salman was, you know, he didn't know about Medina. He's just, you know, they just took him. But then when he saw like these two black hills, this is Medina, and he, and he recognized the location as being the location that the prophet would be sent. So actually what you understand there is that Medina in the scriptures the, the Jews knew it and the Christians knew it, that this would be the area that the Prophet would be sent. They already knew it. So they already know that Medina was where the Prophet would migrate. It has its characteristics. Salman anhu worked as a slave in Medina many years. And then he heard that a Prophet had announced prophethood in Mecca. And then later as he was following his life, Salman anhu is a slave in Medina. Then he heard that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ was migrating to Medina. He was, um, you know, he was up in a tree pulling out dates and these two Jewish slave masters, they were discussing about the Prophet ﷺ. They're saying, oh, you know, the Aws and Khazraj, they're, you know, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. They're discussing and Salman's hearing about the Prophet, he got so excited. He said like he almost fell out of the tree from excitement. And then he came down and he went to his masters like, you know, what happened? Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. And they slapped Salman. And they said to him, it's none of your business. So Salman radiallahu anhu, he heard the Prophet sallallahu had come and he stayed. His first location was Quba. So you write it down. Quba was the first location that the Prophet sallallahu stayed at. Quba is on the outskirts of like this city. Obviously, it's still within the border of Medina. It's about an hour's walk today from, from Mr. Nebawi, from the inner city. That's where the Prophet ﷺ landed. And then what he did is, you know, he spent some days there until Masjid Nabawi was built and then he moved to the inner city, the inner city of Medina. So Salman would finish his work and then he would go out to, to see this Prophet and to see if he was actually the Prophet. So as you can see, everybody's coming, they're testing to see, is this really the Prophet of Allah? Is this the one sent by Allah? So Salman who came that first night, he brought some, some dates. And he said to the Prophet, he knows what the sign is. Obviously, he hasn't told anybody. So he gave the dates to the Prophet ﷺ. He said, this is a gift for you. The Prophet ﷺ accepted the dates. 
and distributed it to all the companions and didn't, uh, sorry, he didn't say it as a gift to you, sorry, he said it was sadaqah. He said it was sadaqah. It's charity. So the Prophet accepted it from him and he distributed it to all the companions and the Prophet didn't eat any of it himself. You know, there's a beautiful lesson here, just kind of like a footnote. The Prophet didn't get angry at him because he gave him dates that were sadaqah. Right? Normally when we were like, I don't accept sadaqah, right? we get angry at people when they make a mistake. The Prophet like, even Salman has to pay attention. The Prophet is not hurting his feelings. Right? So he accepts the sadaqah and he's distributing the dates amongst the companions, but he's not eating of it himself. And Salman's making note that he passed the first test. The next day, Salman is working and then he comes back the next day. And he brings some more dates to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, ya Ras, you know, gives to the Prophet and he says, this is a gift for you. This is a gift for you. The Prophet ﷺ accepted and he ate a date. And he distributed the rest amongst the companions. Salman ﷺ said he's passed the second test. And so then there's one, one test left. What's the, te the last test? The seal of the Prophet on his back. How do you find the seal of the Prophet? What do you need to do? You need to go and like knock over the shawl or something. Salman while they're sitting, Salman is sitting beside the Prophet and he's like creeping backwards. He's like sliding backwards, trying to get behind the Prophet and somehow, you know, see the seal of the Prophet on his back. So the Prophet saw Salman, you know, he's, he's sliding backwards behind him. And then he said, uh, perhaps you want to see this. The Prophet took his shawl and lowered it, and Salman saw the seal of the prophethood. At that point, Salman started crying. He started crying and crying and crying. And everybody was there, you know, shocked at why is he crying? Like just out of, out of nowhere, Salman is just crying. So then he's like, my whole life I've been looking for you. His whole life, in his search for the truth, that now he found the Prophet It's interesting how um, Salman radiallahu anhu, the companions, they loved these names, the Ansar, the Muhajireen, and so they would debate amongst themselves whether Salman radiallahu anhu, was he amongst the Ansar or was he amongst the Muhajireen? Because the Muhajireen would say that he's been doing hijrah his whole life to be with the Prophet He left his home. He didn't just say, oh, a Prophet's going to come. He went to be with the Prophet And the Ansar said that Salman was in Medina when the Prophet was here, so he should be from amongst the Ansar. When the Muslims arrived in Medina, they became sick. Many of them became sick. Now, between the weather of Mecca and Medina, for those who don't know, Medina is north of Mecca. Medina is north of Mecca. I think when everybody says Mecca, Medina, they always think that Mecca is above Medina, but on a map, it's actually the opposite. So Medina is like here, and Mecca is, is down. So this is Medina, right? Medina is here, and this is Mecca. So Mecca, and the distance between the two is about, by car, it takes about five hours. By car, it takes about five hours. If someone's traveling in the desert, it might take two weeks. I take two weeks for a normal like journey. It could go faster than that, right? It could go faster if someone was traveling much more quicker. It might take seven days to travel in the desert. 
if you're going by camel or, or so on. So Medina is actually cooler than Mecca. It's cooler than Mecca. Mecca is like always hot. Morning, evening, you know, it's always like plus 50 the whole day, right? It doesn't, it doesn't go down. So that consistency in weather is actually like, it doesn't, there's not like fluctuations. Medina, on the other hand, can get very cold during the night, right? Very cold. Someone's wearing like a very thick jacket for Fajr. And then by the time the sun comes up in the morning and Dhuhr time, it can go up to like plus 25, right? You can get very hot and then get cold again during the night and so on. So when the Muslims came to Medina, Abu Bakr, Bilal, Amr ibn Fuhaira, they became very ill. They got a fever. So the Prophet ﷺ made dua for Medina. He said, Allahumma habib ilayna al-Medina kama habbabta ilayna Mecca aw ashad. Oh Allah, make us love Medina. Make us love Medina just like you made us love Mecca or even more than that. Make us love Medina the same way that we love Mecca or even more. And take its fever, right? So people when they come to Medina, they get feverish. The Prophet said that take that, that quality of Medina and send it to Al-Juhfa, which is another area. And then the Prophet said, Allahumma barik lana fi muddina wa sa'ina. That, O oh Allah, bless us in our mud and sa'a. Mud and sa'a are, they are measurements. Right? Like you would say a kilo, a pound, and stuff like that. Mud and sa'a are similar measurements. They're ways that, by which people would measure. And it's interesting about Medina. Whenever you have people going to, uh, for Umrah, I think if you take statistically, between, you know, everybody's always asking this question, which do you like better, Mecca or Medina? How many people have asked that question or have heard that question being asked? Okay, it's an interesting question because what's the point of asking that question anyway? You love them both, alhamdulillah. You love them both. But it's been my experience that most people will say Medina. Most people will say Medina. They're like, what did you love better? They'll say, we love Medina. The Prophet said, in, in the past, it might be like everybody loved Mecca and they didn't want to go to Medina and so on. And the Prophet said, prayed for Medina. And I've actually seen this recent trip that I went for Umrah. There was a taxi driver that came from Mecca. And he was telling me, he's like, I don't know what's up with Medina. He's like, everybody seems calm here. And he's from Mecca. <laughs> right? He's like, everybody, he's like, they're not stressed out. And he's like, they, they actually look happy. <laughs> and, and then another brother came like a couple of days later from Mecca. And he said the exact same thing. He's like, it's a completely different picture here. The people here, they're actually happy. They're not stressed out and so on. And that's the feeling that you get when you go to Medina. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. If you travel to Medina with someone that treats you good when you're there, so that you have a good experience, inshallah ta'ala. And if someone treats you bad, then they don't deserve to be there, okay? And it's not a reflection of Medina. Unfortunately, that's what happens when people go to these places, someone treats them badly, and then they blame Mecca for that person. Or they blame Medina for that person. But that's all, these are the sins of the children of Adam, right? They'll do something haram, and so on. And the barakah in Medina, the barakah in Medina, this is like a personal story. When I, was, um, when I was a student in Medina, they used to give like monthly allowances. And the monthly allowance comes out to about, you could say, I guess, about 100 and something pounds, maybe 120 pounds per month. And I was married at that time at about 120 pounds. I've, I've calculated it in pounds for you. <laughs> this amount of money, I wouldn't realize how less it was 
until someone from the Western world would come. I wouldn't understand it. Because what would happen is that 100 pounds per month, we would actually have money saved up. Right? So we'd spend the money, and you'd think, oh, you know, we're stingy, we're trying to save. No, we're not stingy. We're actually very generous. You know, we're going out to restaurants or something like that and buying stuff. And then the money is being accumulated, accumulated, accumulated. The book fair would come to town in Medina, and we'd have all this extra money to buy books. That's the way it was in Medina. And someone would come out, like, only 100 pounds? In the Western world, that's crazy. You can't survive on 100 pounds, right? Probably the bus here costs 100 pounds, right? <laughs> or a taxi car, a cab, or something like that. And, I, and, and at that time, I didn't understand what they were saying until you, like, you leave Medina, and now you're back in the regular world where everything is like, there's like you'll say, like, there's no barakah. You'll put money, and you're spending, spending, spending. You have make 100,000, and you're still like, you know, where's the good life? <laughs> there was a brother also, one time it was Eid on Eid, or students there, and, you know, there's no families. We just have our, our just regular, so he invited some brothers over. And this brother doesn't have too much money, but he buys like a, a tray, some rice, and some chicken on it. That's it. And you could count about 25 people, 30 people that went to his house. And at the end of the night, there's still food there in the tray. And then the brothers are sitting around saying that, you know, if we were back in Britain or something like that, you know, you're talking about a buffet of food. A buffet of food, and all the food ends, and it's not enough for the people. But here in Medina, you just have, like, this food, very simple food, but yet this is the barakah, the du'a of the Prophet ﷺ. Ibrahim ﷺ prayed for Mecca, and that's mentioned in the Qur'an, his du'a for Mecca. And, um, and, you know, provide for them from, like, the fruits that perhaps they would be thankful. And so the Prophet ﷺ made du'a for Medina. Made du'a for Medina. 